Welcome to Just Checking In. I'm Becky Buckman. And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms. We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking In. I am so excited about today. I know I say this about every podcast. You say I'm that every really... week. How excited are you on a scale of one to 10? I'm in a constant state of excitement when it comes to this podcast. Rachel Lerman who of the Washington Post, who is, first of all, one of the coolest chicks you'll ever meet. She's just so, she's just cool is the best way I can explain her. She was one of the, the main reporters down at the Elizabeth Holmes trial. And so I, I sent her a text and I was like, would you come on our podcast and just tell us what it's like? And she did excitedly. I know. No, super cool. I mean, she was one of many journalists. Like I think a lot of us yeah. in comms, you, the place where I communicate with journalists the most these days is either on Twitter or on text. And if you're on Twitter, you, we, we saw many of our journalist friends tweeting about, yeah. you know, the lines outside the courthouse and the pre-dawn hours and going to the Starbucks. And so it was really interesting to get a firsthand like person on the spot view from Rachel about what it was like to physically cover that trial. Yeah. And I think she said this was the first, you know, trial she's covered, the first like criminal trial. And it was this tiny courtroom in, you know, San Jose. It's like an hour away from San Francisco. They had to be there at like 3 a.m. I mean, it's just super, super interesting. And I think it's it's super interesting because you're you're covering something that is so well documented as it is. Rachel's background too is really instructive because I think you said, Kiana, you used to work for a company that was based in Seattle. And you first met Rachel when she was a reporter at the Puget Sound Business Journal. And not everybody starts at the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post or the New York Times. When you're in journalism, you start small. And it's just a reminder that when you find good, fair, smart reporters, no matter their publication and no matter where they are, it's in your interest to get to know them and to learn from them. Um, because you never, you know, these people are going to go on and do bigger things. And, you know, it's good to have those relationships over time. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you could say that about a lot of jobs, right? Like you kind of grow up together. The two of us were, you know, little, you know, business analysts or like we were 22 years old, fresh out of college. And, you know, that person's now, a, you know, a partner somewhere that we actually needed a a quote from that place. And I was like, oh, actually, you know, I, I know that person. I worked with them when I was 22. You do grow up together. And, and you know, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about relationships matter. Yes. And I had just started out in PR. And I think Rachel had just started out in journalism. She had either just graduated or she was only like a couple years out. And she was at Puget Sound Business Journal, which the small tech company I was working for in Seattle that mattered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, when I say she's, you know, she's awesome, she really is. And she and I just sort of hit it off and, um, we stayed in touch. You know, I tried not to pitch her as much right, now, right. um, for a couple of reasons. One, she's at Wash Post, which is, you know, I think they, they are a little bit different, but two, because we've just been friends for so long, but she's definitely, you know, if I need an introduction or something, she's, she'll, you know, I'll go to her and she's super helpful. Or she's come to me and say, Hey, like I need a source on this. Like, do you have any ideas? She's incredibly smart and just incredibly cool. And her coverage is awesome. For sure. And I would say finally, reporters like Rachel at publications like The Post are also good because talking to them brings us out of our tech or Silicon Valley bubble, you know, where everyone knows yeah. what IT ops is, and everyone's a unicorn and blah, blah, blah. You know, The Washington Post is not going to cover your funding announcement. The Washington Post is looking to do 
real journalism, write about technology trends, and the best comms people are going to find a way to kind of up-level their company stories um, to get into that that kind of coverage. What's the other thing? Not a unicorn. What's the new one? No, dragon? yeah, dragon. I think that was, we talked about that in the, I think that was the yeah. damn Primac term. I like decacorn, but you know, you're a decacorn, right? Deca- or a dragon. No, I think we're you're a, dragon. a dragon. You're breathing fire. Okay. Um, between a decacorn and a dragon, you know, I'm going to go dragon right, all day long. Right, That's right, right. It sounds more Game of Thronesy. <laughs> so, all right. Well, listen, I'll, we'll, we'll exactly. hop in in a second, but it was great to talk to Rachel. Oh my gosh. So wonderful. All right, let's do it. I am so excited to welcome one of my dear friends and someone that I worked with for years and years, Rachel Lerman. She is a tech reporter at the Washington Post, which has a special place in my heart because I'm from DC. But she is a Washington Post reporter out of San Francisco, and she has actually worked at some incredible publications, including the AP and the Seattle Times. And um, Rachel is here to talk about one of our favorite topics, if you know us at this point, the Theranos trial. But Rachel was actually one of the people on the front lines covering the trial day in and day out. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about the topic that has consumed my life for the last six months. <laughs> how, how happy were you when they reached a verdict and it was over? I mean, I think I was just kind of relieved because I've been driving back and forth to San Jose so much. I live in San Francisco, so really it's not that far, right? It's about an hour, but an hour at 3 a.m. feels a lot longer than an hour at, you know, 8 a.m. Okay, explain this to everyone. Why did you have to wake up at th- or drive there at 3 a.m.? Like, I want to know, like, what was it? What was like the logistics? of covering this thing. So this trial was held in the federal courthouse in San Jose in a tiny courtroom, like so small that there were only 34 seats for press and public. There were other seats that were like reserved for um, Holmes's family and uh, some of the like government agents who were there, but press and public 34 seats. And so if you wanted to get one of those seats, you had to get there really early in the morning, especially once Elizabeth Holmes took the stand, which happened in mid-November, because what was happening then was it wasn't just, you know, me and other reporters and media and people there, but it was also spectators because people have heard so much about her and like seen the documentary or read the book or you know, whatever that they want to come, right? Or both, <laughs> totally. or heard a podcast, or heard they about a podcast. And, yeah. Yes. So they wanted to come and see it for themselves, and so you know, we had members of the public and press, and so at the height of her testimony, like during her testimony, I was getting there around three a.m. Oh my god! Oh my gosh, uh, you were getting there at three a.m. I was getting there at three a.m. So for her testimony, I actually stayed in a hotel in San Jose, which I realize sounds a little ridiculous since it's only an hour from my house. But since I had to get there at 3 a.m., it was just easier to roll out of bed and walk the block. Did they have, so sometimes, like, just as an ex-journalist myself, I know sometimes they'll have pool reports, like they'll allow one, you know, they do this when you're covering the president or something, somebody goes in the plane, and then they file a pool report. So did you have that? Or if you didn't get a seat, you were out of luck, and you had no quotes, nothing? for your story. If you didn't get a seat, you were out of luck. There was no pool, but there were wires there. So Reuters and AP were there. So if, if you, you know, belong to a news organization that subscribes to one of those, you could, you could do that. But I I mean, I was way too paranoid not to get a seat. So I always just got there really early. There was also an overflow room 
it was just <laughs> being in the overflow room was just like a little depressing because there's audio and video. Like you can see the courtroom, but you're sitting, you're essentially just sitting in like an empty courtroom watching a TV. And you're kind of like, why did I drive to San Jose to watch television? Right. So right. it was really better to get into the main courtroom and kind of like feel the energy and get to actually see people in person. Right. How that's, this is fascinating. So how, I mean, you get in there and, and obviously you've been covering, well, actually, let me ask you this. Like how much had you been covering Theranos before you sort of started covering the trial? Like how well versed were you by the time you got there? Yeah, it's a good question. So when all of this actually happened, right? Like when when uh, the Wall Street Journal was investigating Theranos, I was a reporter in Seattle. I think it was barely on my radar. So when I got the assignment this summer, which I had wanted, by the way, because I had read Bad Blood and I thought it was a fascinating book. And so I was just super interested. Also, I'll be totally honest that this was happening during the pandemic. And I was like, any excuse to leave my house, please. <laughs> That's true. Um, so I got the assignment and I spent, you know, most of July and August just kind of researching this because there's been so much ink spilled about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And it's just, and there was the SEC charges and there, the podcasts and documentaries and books. And it, there's just been a lot. So there was a lot to wade through. How do you, like, how do you objectively, like, I don't think I could objectively, I obviously couldn't be a juror. Like they would have thrown me out <laughs> real fast. I'm like, you need to go. Um, you have way too many opinions. But like, how do you objectively cover a trial of something that has so much like other noise around it? Like, was that you challenging? Know, it- Yeah, I think so in some ways, because there's been so much written about it before, which I have read a lot of, right? But also, I I think a trial sort of naturally lends itself to that, because they have to present information in such a, um, sorry, I'm trying to think of the word, like a rigid and and, uh, measured kind of way. Otherwise, you know, the judge won't let them present it. And so covering a trial in that in that way is kind of, it makes it almost easier to see the case through fresh eyes because you're seeing the evidence that they're presenting to the jury as new, as new evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Or it might not be new to me since I've read some of the past articles, but I'm able to see it as, as the jury might see it. Of course though, I did have the additional context and I was sitting in the courtroom able to Google things if I (laughs) needed to look something up, which the jurors of course could not do. What maybe walk us through the most dramatic moments of the trial. I mean, I adds, I would have been very excited to cover this as well because I I realize I'm dating myself, but the last time I was in a federal courthouse was when I was covering the Microsoft antitrust trial in DC. And it was so boring that I'm not kidding you, the elderly judge fell asleep during part of the testimony. And that was part of the coverage of the trial. Did you write that in your article? No, I, that was not on a day (laughs) I was there. I selectively covered, but what, but I mean, this just lends itself to drama. So tell us about the most dramatic moments that you saw. So, you know, right, that like, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure being in an actual courthouse is not like watching court TV, you know, it's so <laughs> not law and order. Like, it's not as good as yeah, law, it's and not order. law and order. Judge it's, like Judy. A bunch of, <laughs> it's like a bunch of reporters sitting around trying to type quietly because we kept getting in trouble for typing too loudly. 
Um, but definitely the most <laughs> dramatic moment of the trial for me was when they called Elizabeth Holmes to the stand because we didn't know whether she was going to be called or not. And it also happened at 3 p.m. on a Friday afternoon, which was one hour before court was set to to adjourn for the day. And we were just convinced that it wasn't going to happen. I was sitting next to another reporter and she was like, print deadline is soon. Do you think they're going to call anyone significant? And I was like, no, no, not at three on a Friday. Oh no. And she I, left. I predicted everything <laughs> <wrong>. <laughs> no, we both stayed. Do you think they did that on purpose? I don't know. Are they like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's something to be said for then technically they would have like the last word before the weekend. And so the jurors would be thinking about it before the weekend. But on the other hand, how much, I, I don't know this cause I'm not a lawyer, but how much can you game that out? Because that morning it had switched from the prosecution's case to the defense's case. And they called like a summary witness, just like a paralegal. And then they called a former board member. And then, you know, they had one hour left in the day and, a collective kind of like gasp went around the room when they said her name. And it was just a bunch of like, you know, reporters slacking their editors, me in all caps. Ah! <laughs> Hold the press. <laughs> so how did she do though? I mean, my understanding from maybe I read this in your story was that she came off as pretty poised and likable, right? I think she came off as very poised, very measured, um, very composed. She got emotional. Sometimes, especially when she was talking about, you know, she has uh, alleged that her ex-boyfriend and ex-business partner, Sonny Balwani, has abused her. He's he's denied that. Uh, but she got emotional when she was talking about that, but sort of only slightly. She's very, um, yeah, she's very composed. It's also like, you know, with testimony like this, right? Like they're asking her questions and she's saying yes or no, or I did. And so there were very few times when she was speaking in multiple sentences because that's, you know, hold not on really the pace of the testimony. Super important question. Did she use the low voice or her regular or her real voice? This is an interesting question. And uh, absolutely the one that I get asked most about this case. She has a low voice. <laughs> like in general, you're saying. And you think that's her real voice. It's the only voice I've ever heard her talk in, including in like the hallways of the courthouse, because it was a very very small, tight courtroom. So truly, I have no idea if it's her real voice. But every time I heard her talk, it was using she has, you know, a deep voice for a woman's register. And then she just made it deeper. The argument is she just made it deeper. I've totally heard the argument. And I, I've also heard, you know, I think, gosh, sorry, I can't remember if it was the documentary or not, where somebody who had known her before said, oh, she used to speak in a higher voice. Like, I, there's a lot of speculation around that. Honestly, I don't know. It, I, it doesn't sound to me like she's putting on a fake voice, but I would have nothing to compare it to, right? Because it's the only time I've heard her talk. It is very yeah, deep. that's fair. Right. This question has nothing to do with the testimony, but I'm, I was also fascinated by her family. It looked like her mother was there every day. I noted that they appeared to have the same hair colorist. They looked a lot alike. And then her, I don't know if it's her husband or current partner, was there as well. Were you watching them during the trial as well? I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Her mom and her partner were there almost every day. And sometimes some friends or other family members were there, but most of the days her mom and her partner were there. Yeah. And you know, it, it was an interesting trial to cover too, because we were all kind of like I can't really express enough how close of quarters these were. Like we were all sharing the same bathroom and on the same floor and the courthouse itself was very small. And so her partner, Billy Evans, was, you know, a pretty chatty, friendly 
you know, small talk kind of things with the with the press and her other like her mom and her friends were totally polite, although did not really engage in conversation, which who can blame them, right? Um, so it it was interesting just how close you are to her and her family and also all of the lawyers. Like I haven't covered very many trials in person, but this was definitely like tighter than I expected. Yeah. Interesting though, that you could like run into her in the bathroom. That yeah, seems so strange to me. It's, I mean, usually she would go to the bathroom, like with a, an attorney or a friend or something like that. But I, you know, I don't think anyone was trying to like yell questions at her mm. in the bathroom. I hope. <laughs> that that was going to be my next question for you. Like, were you ever in a, like a, a position where you were like, don't ask, don't ask her anything. Don't ask her anything. Be professional. Like I would have probably not exhibited professionalism. I sort of had an internal debate with myself where I was kind of like, well, my job is to ask questions. Right. On the other hand, we're in a bathroom. (laughs) So I didn't say anything. The only time I really tried (laughs) to ask her questions when she was when she was entering or leaving the courthouse on big days, like on the verdict day, we tried to call out questions to her, which she didn't answer um, as she was leaving. What was her demeanor once the verdicts were read? You know, she looked the same as she had during the case. I will also say, though, of Mm. course, everyone was masked during the entire trial because COVID. And so it was harder to read like jurors or lawyers, et cetera, expressions because everyone was wearing masks. But during during the trial and during the verdict, she, you know, she was sitting up just very uh, straight and tall in her chair with a very um, just kind of calm demeanor. Yeah, the COVID thing is fascinating because this whole thing happened against the backdrop of COVID. And didn't some jurors get dismissed or there were delays because of that, I think? Gosh, that's a good question. I in the beginning there was one delay. I believe it was because a juror had a potential exposure and was waiting to see if they uh, tested positive. That was gosh, that must have even been maybe even September. It was really early on in the trial, and so that delayed a couple of days. But actually, it was kind of amazing that the trial finished with um, without any you know Omicron outbreaks that we know of within the jury or staff. Yeah. Did you guys have to get like tested or anything or what was the, what was the thing there? It it was just masked. I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure they asked potential jurors if they were vaccinated and I'm pretty sure they dismissed ones who weren't fully vaccinated, but they did not ask the press corps or the public, which is kind of interesting because of Mm. course we were sitting like five feet away from them. Okay. So one, I think last question on this do you think that this will be kind of like, when you look back, do you think this will be sort of one of the the highlights of your career? Like, has it been a highlight of your reporting career? Like, where does this stack up in stuff you've seen in life? For me, it's just so different because I almost never cover trials. I think this is my first criminal trial that I've covered. I'm almost never in large groups of media. I'm almost never, you know, stuck in is stuck in a tiny room for eight hours a day, like listening for that nugget of news. And also this is probably one of the more like high profile people that I've covered. Of course, I've covered tech CEOs and things like that, but she's a very like controversial and embattled figure. And so that was really fascinating for me to cover in real life. I feel like she's a little more celebrity than tech CEO. It's interesting, right? Because it's like she was held up as as a role model of like young female entrepreneurs in in biotech industries. And then she, you know, partially because of that media attention had this very public fall. 
So one aspect of the trial that I was fascinated with was something you mentioned earlier, which was these allegations she was making against Sonny Balwani. I mean, do you think it seems like at the end that wasn't really impactful for the jury and maybe her the the lawyer didn't bring it up. Her lawyer didn't bring it up in closing statements. Do you think that was a mistake for them to bring that up or did it work for her? It's a really good question. I I expected from the pretrial documents that we saw filed and from them bringing it up during her testimony that we would see it become a bigger deal as the trial went on. Like I expected since they brought it up, maybe they would bring on the psychologist or psychiatrist can't remember to kind of back that up, or maybe they would bring it up in the closing arguments. They didn't do that. And so something that we thought was going to be a main part of the defense ended up being just kind of an aside. Hmm. Interesting. Are you going to cover his trial? That's a really good question. I might cover it, although I doubt that we will cover it as closely. Like, I doubt that we will cover it every single day. Well, listen, Rachel, let's shift gears a little bit. I'm also excited to ask you about the place that you work now, which is the Washington Post. You know, I went to Kiana's a DC native. I went to college in DC. I once worked as a copy aide at the Washington Post, so I have very fond memories of it. But I mean, boy, as a lot of other publications have shed reporters and had financial problems, it seems like the Post, you know, maybe this is mainly because of Jeff Bezos's ownership um, and the cash he's been able to give the Post, seems like it's doing very well. And, you know, people keep getting hired there. It seems like you guys have a lot of latitude to do bigger, more enterprise-oriented stories. Maybe talk to us about what lured you to the Post and how you think you know, the paper's doing and how it's stacking up against the competition these days. I love working at the Post. Honestly, it's it's one of my very favorite jobs ever. You know, I've been a tech reporter for almost a decade now, and I've worked at several different publications. And one of the reasons I really wanted to join the Post is because, well, they hired a lot of awesome people. Uh, I have fantastic editors, but also they're putting a real, you know, they put a real focus on accountability journalism. So they want to hold companies accountable. They want to investigate what's going on. You know, they they want to, to, to shed light on these like historically very um, opaque institutions. And I also think in general, the Post has a very engaging style of writing. Like I think across the newspaper, it's really a newspaper for the general public, which I love because I think you know, everyone deserves to know what's going on. Rachel, how big is the is the San Francisco Bureau now? Because I feel like a bunch of my former colleagues from the journal have been hired. Christina Passiarello, who's from the journal, is, I think, running that bureau, right? I mean, how, are you, how big is it and are you still growing? I joined in uh, April 2020, which is a, you know, really interesting time to start a new job. So oddly, I've oh, actually gosh. never worked in person at the San Francisco Bureau since we've been remote the entire time. I mean, I've been to the office two or three <laughs> times total. But we did another expansion this summer mm-hmm. where we hired people onto our personal tech team. I, I honestly think that we're probably pushing about 15 people in the San Francisco Bureau now that that includes, you know, editors and uh, video reporters and reporters. Uh, so it, I mean, it's really growing because a few years ago, that number was one. Oh, gosh. Well, what are some of the other topics you and your colleagues are either most interested in or what do you think's undercovered right now and you think people should be paying attention to in the tech scene? Oh, gosh. Always interested in tech privacy, always interested in antitrust implications, misinformation we're very interested in. Also just interested in the way that people interact with tech in their daily lives, right? Like it's something that we almost take for granted now, but of course it's changing all of the time. And I think 
I mean, I'm just going to plug the team that I'm not even on, but we have a team within our tech team called the help desk team that writes like for people to understand like their relationship with their technology and their daily lives. And it's been wildly helpful for me too. Like every time I read their columns, I'm like, I did wonder about that. And so that's been great. That's really interesting. I didn't know you guys had that. I mean, you guys definitely, you kind of touched on this, but you guys definitely have a different sort of style of coverage. I'll I'll say this, like you're speaking to your true audience as opposed to sort of pandering to big tech, it feels like. I think that our goal is really to serve readers and our readers tend tend to be like a general public of the country, you know? And so we're trying to write for people to understand mm-hmm. tech to yeah. hold, and we're trying to hold these tech companies accountable. Yeah. Maybe partially because the post is based in Washington, DC, the antitrust issues are going to be first and foremost and covering big tech is naturally going to be a big focus of your coverage. Huge focus. And obviously just keeps getting more important. It seems. I'm so excited that we had you on. I mean, I've obviously been watching your Twitter from covering the trial, and I was sort of living vicariously through you. It just sounded like, you know, such an experience, and, and it's awesome that you got to uh, to experience it. And then even better that you came to share it with us. Yes, it was so good to talk to you again. And thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at, at Kiana Corliss and at Rebecca Buckman. Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Karkos. 